Hello, everyone. Welcome to Discover Joyous Love. I'm your host, Anita DiFrancesco, and this is episode 22. And today I'm going to be interviewing a very special guest of mine that our topic is going to be the focus of ecstatic sensuality. And I have um, Mr. Randolph Pitts with us today. Hello, Randolph. Hi, Anita. And we are going to be talking about the the idea of sensuality, ecstatic, and what it means, and the whole authenticity of where where we fit in in the world of, of sensuality. But first, let me give you some background on Mr. Randolph Pitts, who is from Los Angeles. Uh, he holds summa cum laude degrees in social psychology. Egyptology from the University of California, Berkeley, and a master's degree in motion picture production and entertainment law from UCLA. To say the least, he has a very diverse background. He also has done advanced research for the Department of Psychology at UCLA, concentrating on couples and relationships dynamics. So this is the focus area that we're going to be talking about where he has his experience and knowledge. He's a member also of the Phi Beta Kappa and the American Physiological Association, the organizational, the organization of university professors of philosophy. He's also associate member of Los Angeles County Bar Association. Now, Randolph, he's a top executive in the entertainment business. Several, he has done, he's worked for several entertainment companies. He's uh, including a 10-year stint as a chief executive officer of the company that produced Leaving Las Vegas, where Nicolas Cage starred in that, and he won his Academy Award. It was a wonderful film, and this is um, one of his uh, projects, Randolph's projects. He has a lifelong interest in the relationship between philosophy, psychology, and history. I love it. Founder and host of his podcast is called Explore Ecstatic Sensuality Podcast. So Randolph, hello, and how are you? Let's start with just tell me something about yourself, uh, you know, briefly, not the whole bio that I just gave you, but uh, where you are with this sensuality before I get into the questions. Sure, absolutely. The first thing I want to say is how pleased I am to be here on your podcast. I'm a great fan of your podcast and have listened to all of your shows or watched them on YouTube. What I like about your show in particular is that you get down into the real nitty gritty of relationships. You know, it's easy to sort of, you know, pour honey on something and say, oh, all I have to do is say, I love you, I love you, and maybe go out to a nice dinner and bring flowers. That's not the hard work that you need to have a successful relationship. It's my opinion. Okay. So what is the hard work that we need to have a successful relationship? In my maybe opinion, one, one thing maybe that comes okay. to mind. The one thing is that each member of the couple has to recognize the core of the other person's being. You know, it's what uh, Melanie Klein, who invented object relations psychology, has this idea that there is an inner core to someone. And unless you find that inner core, you're going to be lost. It's the thing that is absolutely special and unique about you. It's not that you're a good provider. It's not that you're, uh, you know, have a certain hobby, one thing or the other. The person, each person has to recognize the other's inner ambition, what makes them tick. And on the basis of that, the relationship can go forward and be successful. I'm not saying that there aren't going to be disputes. I'm not saying that there are not going to be arguments and difficult times. But this recognition of the mutual of the core, the mutuality of these cores is really very important. Mm, interesting. I like that. And to say the least, relationships are very challenging these days because, you know, people have this this um, this this uh, issue about meeting each other halfway. And, you know, it's it's a it's a real challenge. And yet people want love, but they're so far away from it. They don't really, our society doesn't really uh, focus on what love is and how we should really understand such a depthful emotion. And um, so I think that part of love, getting into your topic here, involves the sensuality just of the human senses, the human being, and how they feel and how they respond to feeling, to their relationships with themselves, to the environment around them. 
and, and how they uh, understand this relationship to their heart. And the sensuality is not necessarily mean that it's a sexual thing. It's just about being this person of, of, uh, of, of, of being able to be in touch, so to speak. So my first question for you is, um, why do you believe it's so important to focus on sensuality? I think that for most of us, here we are in America, wherever you are listening to this podcast, if we're in the so-called Western world, it's a society, it's a world based on religions and philosophies that are really anti-sensual in a certain way. Even Buddhism in its own way is somehow anti-sensual. I mean, going back to the philosopher Plato, who had this idea that what we live in is a world that is a pale reflection of an ideal world that live, that exists somewhere else. So if you start with the idea that sensuality and sex, but all aspects of sensuality, not sex, are not as good as some ideal that exists somewhere else, you're going to have a, a lot of territory to traverse before you can really find what sensuality is all about. You know, we have millions of neurons that are constantly giving us information. We have millions of ways in which we can touch and feel and breathe with our partner, whether it's a sexual partner or simply a friend, a sensual partner. And we need to elevate all of these. We need to fine tune all of these in every way we can. I know that what you do through yoga, for example, is a wonderful way to achieve that. One of several, but it's certainly a very important way. Hmm, interesting. So how would, um, and we talk, you talk about here, one must learn to heighten the sensuality in many ways. And again, the fine tuning. And um, so the sensuality is basically, um, it's, a, it's a full body experience, would you say? Well, one of the most important things that I always talk about in my podcast and, and, and elsewhere is that one thing Western philosophy did, going back to people like Immanuel Kant, Rene Descartes, not important to talk about individual people, is this notion that the mind and the body are separate. Mind, body, dualism. And that idea is basically fundamentally wrong. We think and feel with our bodies. We, we experience our concepts and our relation to others in our bodies. It's not like we have this mind that is disembodied out there somewhere. And so, so much of my kind of what I call embodied spirituality is based on this entire notion that the body is the thing, coming back to our bodies in whole new ways. It's almost like learning about our bodies again, as if we were tiny infants, going back and discovering these things that maybe we never discovered because our parents basically did not encourage that kind of discovery. Society really doesn't either. That's my view, anyway. Yeah, and, and we're liberating the senses through the body-brain. Absolutely. The bo yeah, the body has its own brain. The brain is not in the head, as we always thought, the, you know, the body-mind uh, or the brain. First it was the, the mind and then the body-mind. And we were so advanced now in metaphysical teachings that um, people have come to realize that the... Uh, the brain and the body, mind, soul, spirit, sexuality, all of it is one. It, it needs its own alignment, but um, <clears throat> it's a way of liberating. So I think that people can understand this if they become more conscious and they become more open-minded. Uh, and and uh, this can, the open-mindedness can help them to expand and, and the pulsation of the body and open up to their higher senses. And the higher senses are where really, where really your success lives and where your talents start to uh, manifest, I believe. I, I absolutely totally agree. And just to kind of move over or move on to the idea of relationships and couples and coupling, even those that are not sexual by nature or that may transmogrify into sexual relationships from sensuality or never even reach the sort of physical touch sensuality thing. And there's a strong relationship with, between love, obviously, and sensuality, but love is a wonderful way to learn about sensuality, to bring sensuality into your life. There was a, a time when psychologists like Carl Rogers, as one example, talked about how important it is to be loved, 
that one can only realize oneself as the object of love. That's what makes you feel good. That's how you can fulfill yourself. Then Eric Fromm and other psychologists said, wait a minute, this isn't the real story. The real story is to learn the art of loving, to learn the art of loving. And in that way, you find new methods, new means, new vibrations to bring pleasure and sensuality to your partner. But I, I want to continue on with kind of one more idea here. And that is that love is not just a matter of being devoted to someone. Love is not something that is like all in one key. It's like a vast symphony or a vast opera that goes through various stages, that goes through various moods, that goes through various dramas and dynamics that are still all flavorful, if you want to say, say that. They all have their own savor to be appreciated. And it's this mutual enjoyment of the whole thing. Even in a certain way, an argument can be enjoyable if there's a couple that really gets each other, that really understands that it's, it's liberating to move through these disagreements. It's liberating both as individuals and as a couple to go beyond these things. And then you reach a whole different height. It's like climbing a mountain. Couples are always going up, to, you know, the side of a mountain, up a long trail, but then they look out and realize that they found a whole new perspective on life and on themselves as well as well as each other as a couple. It's really a wonder, a wonderful thing. And of course, sensuality goes along with this in, in, in every way. Absolutely. Wonderfully, uh, wonderfully said. I mean, it's, you know, expressing your love and um, bringing, bringing just being making love to life and you know in my tantra workshops i teach people how to honor the divine in each other and when we start to open the eye the third eye and in, in, uh, honoring the divine in each other love starts to become more uh, alive in the body so they start to feel it through the body rather than intellectualize the love the word love or the idea of love because people have this I think that people are not liberated enough and there's a lot of shame and fear that go around love, especially that the first people that look at them to love are their parents and they may have had, you know, dysfunctional upbringing so that that love kind of thing turned to shame and fear. And so I think that when they get into this divineness and understand it through a blissful way, through a, a liberating the senses way, that they can open up more to it and have a, a better feeling. And this this is part of the art of loving in Tantra, teaching people that way. Um, right? What would you say? Oh, absolutely. This is this is so beautifully said. I really, I, I just so much appreciate this. And this is the kind of wisdom and kind of message that you give in, in your podcast and your, your videos as well. I want to bring up something that I think is very closely related. Uh, I confess, and I don't apologize for it, to being a, um, a great sit, uh, student in a certain way of Sigmund Freud and his followers. And uh, one thing that he said was that repetition is not such a good thing. Repetition is a trap. We get into patterns that we repeat. Even in the, if I may say, in our sexual experiences, we get into patterns that we repeat over and over again. And the freshness and the newness and the creativity is absent in those situations. The analogy that, that I would use, and I imagine you may pick up on this, is that lovemaking and, and really a relationship should be kind of like an improvisational dance. You know, the, the thrill of being drawn into an entirely different direction by one's dance partner. And the dance journey of lovemaking in the bedroom is great. And the dance journey of, of lovemaking outside the bedroom is, is, is great. It's like there's no, there are no limits to this where you can take it. You're entering an entirely new world in every moment of the relationship. But again, it's like it's like dance. It's not like someone I used to know who did uh, competitive ballroom dancing and every little step had to be exactly so. And it's there's a certain kind of Nietzsche, the philosopher always talked about the difference between the Apollonian, which is something that fits a pattern or a mold in terms of art and sculpture, and the Dionysian relating to the, you know, the ancient Greek god Dionysus, which was the god of intoxication to a certain way, but we're talking about creative intoxication between two people, if that makes any sense. 
Absolutely. The whole dance, improvisational dance, lovemaking and the patterns. You see, people are are stuck in patterns. They're frozen. That's where the, the uh, organomy, Willem Reich's work, comes in to uh, help people to undo the patterns, undo the layers so that they can find their their uh, their soul. They can find their truth. They can um, open up to the dormant areas in the body that prevent them from, you know, experiencing their life. And part of experiencing the life requires tapping into the senses and the sensuality of life, thus the sensuality of lovemaking and the dance that that uh, that is a, a constant uh, chaotic, you know, change where you're continually finding the chaos, but yet finding the center, going in and out of those those moments in life. And uh, and for some people, I believe that this this requires change and this is fearful so people again they go back to that fear or that that um you know that shame and hiding and and they that that's where they get into their patterns and repetition and sensuality the art of life the art of living the art of love is is dying if we don't <laughs> remove the patterns or the limitations and the restrictions that are binding us Right. Oh, absolutely. I love what you said about chaos. I think that's a very important concept. The uh, physicist Richard Feynman and people who have written about him and followed him have said that chaos seems to be an energy center that has nowhere to go. It seems to be a, a diffuse kind of, of energy that cannot be comprehended. But what he also says, what Feynman also said, is that when you're in chaos, you can then enter an entirely new level of perception, an entirely new level of consciousness, an entirely new level of experiencing of the universe, which is extremely, extremely important. I'm going to mention just for a second, there's a contemporary French philosopher, I always talk about it, named Alain Badiou. And he says that the most important thing is what he calls the event. An event is something that changes your vision of truth, that changes your reality, that makes new truths. And he said that that events that make these kind of changes can exist only in a few areas. One is art, one is politics, one is science and, and mathematics, and the other is in love. And I thought that was that is such an inspirational idea that love is something that can really help open up new doors, find new truths, find new ways of looking at the world. And one can do this as an individual in one's own life, feeling the, the love that is inside of, inside of us, beginning with self-love. But then when that expands and extends into relationships beyond oneself and one's family, it's just magical. It's totally magical. Mm. And yes, but again, people have to come to that consciousness, the events, right? The consciousness of love is, you know, we, we, we need to find things that will instrumentally awaken the love that's there because it, it gets buried after you're, you know, you're, you're, you're born, you're innocent, you're, your parents are giving you a lot of love and you're learning what love is. And then all of a sudden, all of that goes away because... There's many experiences and events that come come into play, and this changes the the chemistry of the body and the nervous system and the um, and the cells. So the whole chemistry of the body and the nervous system take a different, like they recreate themselves in in a, a negative way. So what we want them to do is recreate themselves more to unleash themselves, like in dance. Like when I do my wild dance and become very chaotic. It's not, people think I'm, I'm wanting to lose myself, but in actuality, I'm finding myself. Exactly and, right. You and that's the chaos. Move. That's the chaos. Like a child, they get chaotic. They run around in a circle and they're running and, they're, and the parents don't like it because they may get hurt or they look crazy or they look out of control. But it's that moment that they're not losing the self, that they're finding their center. Yes, students of philosophy and poets, many through histories, have, have said essentially that in order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself in a certain way. And I yeah. totally believe that. I totally believe that. That's extremely important. 
Right. And that's one thing I learned in my dance movement therapy training was that chaos was one of the big, big thing that to, to, to you're, you, you lose yourself, but you're finding yourself. So you're not really losing yourself. You, you don't dance to lose yourself. You dance to find yourself, but then you have to, you, you get lost and then you find yourself. And this is very, um, this I find to be very, um, liberating and, uh, its own education in a way it's it's a way of uh, of teaching yourself without words about just about the space around you about people without the words because the words are things that we just learn but we we, we if we keep putting words to things we stay in the head so if you learn this it gives it gives you a better intuition and a perception uh, it, it sharpens those areas, uh, all, all these kinds of trainings. But then again, getting back to the sensuality, that's intuitive, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. But on the subject of language, this is you're really, really on the same page as with me on that. The famous philosopher, and the philosopher I disagree with about just about everything, was named Ludwig Wittgenstein. And Wittgenstein's most famous quotation was, the limits of my language are the limits of my world. And I scratched my head and I said, this is actually the total opposite of the truth. Language is what creates boundaries. We put things into categories so quickly. We put things into boxes so, so quickly. We find something that's utterly new and utterly unique and utterly special. It's never happened before. And the first thing we try to do is to say it's X or Y or Z. You know, people come into things with preconceived ideas. In sex, particularly, people have a preconceived idea of, just to say it, orgasm, for example. There are no preconceptions. We're constantly creating, our, we're actually creating ourselves. The idea that oneself is something static. You know, you're born a certain way, determined entirely by your genes or whatever, just determined by something, and you don't change. The best kind of person, in my opinion, in terms of a person who's most capable of spiritual growth is someone who can constantly be recreating himself, taking his experiences, taking his sensuality or her sensuality, is obviously, and making the self entirely new. Therefore, you're finally you're 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 discovering your potential all the time. That's the that's the secret, that's the joy. Right, discovering your potential and and being reborn every moment, recreating a newness, and you're mediating the whole aging process that way because it's an actual way of never never growing into oldness by that recreating yourself. By recreating the self, so rediscovering this is wonderful. I'm loving our conversation, Randolph. I am as um, well. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you another question on your own podcast. You talk a great deal about creativity. Did we touch on that yet? We didn't really touch, right? No? Oh, you bit, did. Yeah. You already went into that. Did you a not? A little bit. A little bit. Um, you know, and uh, one thing about my podcast, what I like to do, because I have this background in, in research psychology, and I, I work for studies in that area, and I know something about it, but it's always interesting for me to go and see what the research psychologists have discovered or observed. Now, sometimes, like all scientists, they will put things into boxes and categories that are really not liberating. I love the, you know, the title of, of your book, Live Free, Recreate, and Liberate Yourself. I think that's one of the best titles in the entire history of books. Never a book with a better title that I can think of. <laughs> Thank you. Well, that's that's really... for, for me, that's exact, exactly what I did with, with the life I was faced. and. Actually, I, I consider myself to be a miracle because it was my own recovery to liberate. So a lot of people do rec recovery work. You know, people have addictions or worse, sex addictions, alcohol, whatever. But the recovery of life, of the recovery of being born from the womb, forget about, you know, any addiction that you may, you know, take, uh, find yourself involved in in your lifetime. We have We are recovering just from the birth canal. Absolutely. And this is where the, the, the recovery of life is. You're recovering from your upbringing. Not necessarily, you know, that you have to be on some kind of uh, addictive chemical or anything or love or sex, but the recovery of, of um, and for me, that's what I've been doing all my life, recreating myself, 
re recreating myself to be who I wanted to be, to be the real me, and to, and and continually removing my mask, all the masks that I wore over the years. Because a lot of people, you know, they do that. It's the only way they can. It's a survivor method, and they they find themselves, uh, you know, not really being who they are. And this this whole transformation that I went through in my own experiences, I totally enjoyed every moment of it. Just even though there was a lot of pain and stuff and a lot of aloneness, but it's it's become so so authentic and real and and it is who I am and I want to I teach people how to you know get into recreating themselves you, you you there is no victim is what I'm saying everybody wants to hang on to that victim mentality where they're they're like a victim all their life even though they've survived and they healed and they their their life is great they still have a victim mentality there is no victim when you recreate so yourself, we're all victims. You're just being getting the mom getting pregnant. You're a victim. <laughs> bravo, mean, bravo. You know, so so there is no hanging on to uh, a victim mentality, and and this is what I find with people. They're all like hanging on to that. Is it because they need sympathy? They need attention? Well, they have to start to learn how to come back to love the self. And I never consider myself to be a victim. And when I do interviews with people, they'll say, oh, you're a survivor. I go, I'm not a survivor. A survivor to me is someone hanging <laughs> hanging on a, on a tree and you're walking by and you see them. <laughs> You see them hanging because they're looking, they're surviving, you, you know? And I don't feel like that's a survivor, like that's a vision that I have of someone surviving. They're hanging on a hook. You know, everyone wants sympathy. You know, people who portray themselves as victims in a certain way, it's because they have a deep longing for love, a deep longing for connection, and they don't know how to achieve that. They go through life assuming that no one's going to love them because they don't love themselves. So they're going around saying, you know, I had this terrible childhood or I, I got addicted to something and that took years from my life or I had a terrible boss or I, you know, I had a terrible career. I was in this horrible marriage, this, that, or, and, and the other thing. Therefore, I want your sympathy. I want you to, to, I want you to love me because I'm a victim. I don't say that. I want someone to like me or to love me because I'm myself. I am who I am today, and I'm the person who's relating to you, not relating to something from my past. I'm not using you as a stand-in for my mother or my father. I'm not using you as a stand-in for a lover I used to have, or someone else, a, a friend in my life who either was great to me or who let me down or did me wrong. That's the usual thing. Relate to, in order to really relate to the person that, that you're having the experience with in the moment that's an expression that, that you use sometimes which i think is really really important to live in the moment to be with that person in the moment not to be with someone else not to be locked into these patterns where you're just hung up on past failures in your life as you see them right that's so so important well a lot of people have unmet sensitivities that creep up, you know, when they get intimate in a relationship. Uh, the unmet sensitivities from childhood or, or just along the way, whatever, in some areas of their life. And these unmet sensitivities keep people at this deep emotional level of uh, constantly feeling like they're longing for love. And it's, it's those unmet sensitivities that, you know, you, you have to go back in and recreate, reparent yourself be reborn again because you're not going to go back and live that experience but in certain therapies and things you can relive them but to recreate not only to relive them to work out the therapy the pattern the pain uh the fear but to be able to recreate it, it takes a lot of um, a lot of courage to recreate yourself in that way because people find a happy medium a happy place to you know, to, to, to pad the unmet sensitivities and the deep longing for love. They, they find a contentment somewhere, but, but um, to recreate the self and become who you were, because initially, I mean, we're really, we're really, our parents just give us the birth. We are on our own. And, and it's, it's not, it's like that womb, etheric cord that people speak.
still have that fixation too of some sort and then the fixation all along in life that they um the beatings like the mental beatings that go with that fixation like the things that that they experience that are um that are unmet needs um but anyhow it's it's interesting yeah this longing for love right it's it's uh it's there so we got to teach people more about love in life right i totally agree and also i think as we get into maturity that is to say from adolescence on and then into full blown full form adult adulthood we have to really learn what love is and that may sound like a strange thing you know everyone knows what love is going into you know that's an assumption people make but you know love is not going to be the same as it was with your mother or father as it is going to be with friends and people you're intimate with later in life i just want to return this for a second i was talking about the psychologist melanie klein had this interesting idea that uh, when you are born and you're just being suckled at the mother's breast there's both a good breast and a bad breast why is there a bad breast because the bad breast is the absent breast the bad breast is the breast that isn't there for you so it keeps alternating and she describes this as the paranoid schizoid position and that may sound like an odd expression but what she really means is the young tiny infant is always afraid paranoid that the breast is not going to return so this this creates a kind of schizoid view uh that the child has of the mother and of the world and people go through life like that she said that what happens as the child grows slightly older it enters what she calls the depressive position that's just a word of of, of hers that doesn't really has have anything to do with depression per se but it's this realization that we can actually love someone love something to- totally and not constantly being in the paranoid schizoid position wilfred bion the british psychologist said that this is a struggle that we're going through our, our entire lives really to to love totally love without fear love without the schizoid split in ourselves and it's a challenge it's a challenge on an ongoing basis every day that we all must recreate love within ourselves this is where the sensual comes because the sensual needs to be alive we need to be able to have access to the to those frequencies vibrations in our body oh absolutely and, yeah and so in, in general just children touch you know everything all of the senses i'm i mean because what happens is like you talked about split the schizoid personality type that that um that that can leave someone frozen and isolated and antisocial at some point certainly can't yeah and that that's the what Wilhelm Reich talks about the uh, schizoid personality where they're they're so distant from the world when you look at them they they seem like they're so uh disconnected isolated that they they can't be in crowds and uh, they're, they're very um it's it's like the body is very uh not rigid but it's sort of like frozen in a way in the upper body i mean learning to love unconditionally takes practice and i think we need more of that in the schools to teach people more about how to love unconditionally because you know the whole world is full of hate everything's about hate and it it's it's difficult when you're surrounded by um the aggressiveness of that that type of energy that uh for people to really they they can love unconditionally they can but but then it goes by the wayside because it's not it's not a priority in our world i don't feel so we have to connect everything to the world to history all of these things all these factors to like where we are and then the sensuality of the humanness um is just has become so frozen over over time people especially with even with technology i mean technology we're so uh void void devoid of all of this um you know connection to our own senses like people you know they make love over a text you know <laughs> I mean, really they do and they uh everything is a text they send cards like oh i love you and this that over text but they're losing the the voice there you know there comes the voice where you're actually feeling your expression at your fingertips when you talk yes. like when i go to my eye doctor and and he says you know look look at the thing the test he does with the eyes oh yeah 
and and I and I go, I I said I I can't see that. I only can see it with my whole body. So you know, I have them close the door so I don't hear the outside noise. I said I'm listening with my whole body because they leave the door open when they do these tests sometimes. Anyway, it's just kind of a, one of them visual eye tests. But what I said to my doctor, and he looked at me like, you know, because they're so scientific. I said, I, I have to hear with my whole body or I won't be able to do the test. And that's totally what agree. I have learned to hear and listen with the body. It is so powerful. You don't miss a thing. That's your, your, your voice too comes out much more clear. And you're able to make stronger, better decisions in life, you know? Totally. There was a movie that I, I like very much because I think it's a it's a fun movie, but it's also very scary. It came out a number of years ago called Strange Days, directed by Catherine Bigelow. And that was a world in which I think it was Ray Fiennes, the quite fine actor, was a dealer in a sort of virtual reality headset, things that he sold to, to people. And a lot of these were about sex. And the whole idea was that you could put this on and have any kind of sex you wanted with anyone that you wanted to have to have sex with. And he had, an, you know, one of these virtual reality recordings of his famous uh, or his former girlfriend. And this is kind of a, a scary vision of the future. People, you know, there's this word solipsism, the belief that there is nothing outside of yourself. It's a, and we're living in a certain way in a society that's both narcissistic that is, we're so concentrated on ourselves, we can't really have the maximum amount of feelings outside of ourselves. And also solipsistic, which means that inside we feel that nothing else really exists, that we're all alone in a certain way. And this is, this is adumbrated, this is emphasized by all the hostility. The news is filled with hostility. And let's face it, a lot of you know rap music is filled with hostility. And you see these shootings or concerts people go to and people get trampled and even killed. And you look at these things and it's, it's a world based on hostility rather than on, on communication. When there's so much hostility, even basic communication, even a basic conversation, even a basic agreement on terms like what are we talking about here today can't take place because the hostility is right there again right on the table. Something has to be done about this. And I don't think it's about religion as it's defined, particularly in the Western countries. I think it's about spirituality. As you would, as, as you would say, and as I would say, embodied spirituality, which includes a sensual aspect. There is no true, true spirituality without coming to terms with one's sensuality and fine tuning it and understanding that sensuality is not a means of control sensuality is not a means of well i'm gonna i'm gonna do this and turn her on and then she's gonna want to have sex with me you know it's so wrong and that's how men are brought up guys are brought up thinking well if he unhooks her bra or something does this out of the other thing she's going to immediately be submit to him it's not what sensuality is about at all but that comes from this you know, so much, so many of the problems of society are based on what they're now calling toxic masculinity. And you know what? That term is not a false term. You see it everywhere. You see it all the time. Right. Yes, I, I, I saw that, the toxic uh, masculinity. Well, sensuality is about the fluidness, being fluid in your body. And the dance teaches you how to be the fluid, opening up to the connective tissue. Connective tissue is the Y-gyre of the body, and that's where in yoga and things of that nature, or Tai Chi, uh, where the body, uh, that's like a Y-gyre that's flexible and, in, and asymmetrical. And so that's the fluid and that's where the sensual lives in that particular area in the nervous system and the cells, the uh, connective tissue, not so much the muscle, because connective tissue is feminine and the muscle in the body is more masculine. So you have male and female and polarities in everyone's body regardless of you know the sex that you were born um but it's it's that it's that balance that that's the tantra there you go balancing that out the male and female so that you because sex actual sex is anger and aggression without the sensuality it is not it is not even um considered it's almost considered violent just sex in itself it's a violent act but with when you have of course when you have like and love senses do open and that's where like and love come from 
where the senses open up to to teach people that there's a heart. Hey, there's a heart that needs to um, you know be engaged here. But then again, you know, we're living in the the sexual. We've lived in the sexual revolution as coined by Wilhelm Reich. That term where people were able to go out and start having sex freely and be promiscuous and and then turns into overdeveloped egos and narcissism over time. Like we're in a place now, that's where we are in the world where these overdeveloped egos and narcissistic people, I think coming from the whole sexual revolution where people were let out of the cage, but they didn't include the love. And that's why Tantra is such a big uh, learning thing right nowadays because um, it has been in the last 10, 15 years because people have lost that sensuality and uh, the fluidness, the, um, like you say, to embody the sensuality. But uh, yes, we definitely need, and when I wanted to just get back when I was saying when I was in the eye doctor, I meant that I see with my whole body. <laughs> well, yes, exactly. I understood. I, I yeah. Listening, but seeing with the whole body. So if the doctor was doing an eye exam with me, I said, I'm seeing with my whole body, not my eyes. Because that is where your central lives, in that power. It's a power. And, you know, there are sensual, like, let's talk for a moment about women that just have so much sensuality. They exude so much sensuality when you look at them. Like, for example, Marilyn Monroe. Mm -hmm. I mean, you just look at her. She's very sensual, right? Oh, absolutely, for sure. Like Sharon Stone, maybe, you know, in that oh, yeah. movie. Oh, yeah. yeah, like women like that, you know, that are very, that have, that exude that sensuality. Is that because why why do you why do you think that it's 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 part of them? They may not even be sexy or sexual, you know, but they have that it's that part of their power that they they cultivate and they and they allow it to be there. I mean, I don't know if someone this is like a topic I'd like to get in. Is someone born with sensuality? What, what would you say about that, Randolph? It's very interesting. And one takes a step back and one says, what is this really? I think it's partially a sort of narcissism because there's a certain type of person because of their background wants to be noticed. And for women in our society, a way to be noticed and a way to be desired and even liked to get the, the spotlight is by being sexy uh, slash sensual. Is that a bad thing? You know, not not necessarily. But if you're in a situation where, uh, you know, someone is uh, wants to excel in one of the professions or in philosophy or psychology and to sort of require them to be sensual in that way. Now, as a man, yeah, I like, you know, sensual women. I have my favorites if I look around at actresses and opera singers and all these, these kind of types. But the important thing is, it's, uh, I think Jacques Lacan, the French psychologist, was one of many people who said that basically when a man is, is, is making love to a woman, he's really making love not to the woman he's with, but to a fantasy. Many people have said that, but I think Jacques Lacan was one of the most important people who said that. And what we have to, to face here and to conquer is this notion that, uh, that men are really only responsive to this ideal type, to this fantasy that they've built up in their minds, whether based on, you know, I mean, who are my, the sexist women for me? excuse me, in the entertainment industry, Gina Gershon from Showgirls, the movie Showgirls. She's very sexy. She's, you know, she's my friend on Facebook. But anyway, uh, that's the important thing. And fantasy is wonderful. Fantasy is creative. Uh, in my books, I mean, I have fun with, with fantasy. I write about sex and love. But the thing that, uh, that people praise me for is that I write about sex and love together. I write about how people not only meet and, and like and desire each other, but that liking takes a very unique manifestation in the sex that they have. Anyway, those are a few just comments on this whole notion, because I think fantasy is a really important thing to think about, particularly as far as men are concerned, but also, you know, also women. But man, men go around with all these, these, you know, sexual fantasies. And then they begin on that basis to see women as objects, which is not a good thing ever. Hmm. And Cosmopolitan magazine doesn't help, I guess, right? Objectifying the woman. <laughs> 
I've always felt like an objectified woman, you know, over the years. Uh, it's just that way. It is the nature of the, the feminine. And, uh, and today, you know, women are so much more open with their bodies and the way they dress. And, and that's all a good thing, you know, and, and it helps, you know, about sensual. If, if you don't have sensual, you know, there, I'll, there's a class that I'll teach how to be sensual. Mm-hmm. You know, I did teach a class once like that, how to be sensual, how to bring out your sexual prowess, how yes. to be like, it, you know, even if it means to wear a high heels or dress a certain way. And, you know, it doesn't matter what you look like. And if you're if you're a, an athletic body or, or, or more um, heavier body, it doesn't matter. We all have that ability to bring out the sensuality and uh not not only for sex or love or romance but for for your power for your courage for your heart for your success in life to to you know a woman when a woman has that sensual that's power isn't it it absolutely is but here's the other side of that in a certain way when a man is turned on by let's say his wife or his you know regular girlfriend and he's really really under under her power, under her influence in, in that way, he feels that he is yielding some of his power to her. He feels that he's no longer the dominant partner. He feels that he's no longer has the control that he so desperately needs. So many men go to the office if they work in an office or go to the store if they work in a store or a factory, whatever. And they feel, particularly now more than ever, they feel powerless. They don't feel that they have authority as they wish they had. Authority seems to be concentrated for men and fewer and fewer people every day, every year. And on a minute by minute basis, the average guy doesn't feel he has much power. So where does he do? What does he do? He goes home and there's this woman. He goes on a date. There's this, this woman. And his inclination is to dominate, excuse me, immediately. And is this a bad thing? Well, it kind of it kind of is. And it's a bad thing, too, in the sense, as, as I was saying a moment ago, that a man should really be able to submit to the woman's sensuality, to let the woman, the individual woman he's with, not his fantasy, to be to be individually sensual for him because every woman has her own style of sensuality she needs to develop that i look forward to the fact that you're teaching a class on that because sensuality for women or for men isn't generic you know every every generation seems to have its own standard model but last night I was watching a 1931 movie starring Jean Harlow, who was this blonde actress who was very sexy in 1931. Would she be considered sexy today? Yeah, probably. But there was a certain style that she had that, that was responded to very much at, at that moment. Who is sensual today? Um, name someone. Many of them out there. But women need to find their own style, find their own mode, because it goes back to creativity. Being sensual is a creative act, whether a woman or for a man. If it ceases to be creative, it's no longer really sensual. Now, this brings us, we have about five more minutes, but this brings us to, in the Tantra world, awakening the masculine, the man. Now, let's go right to the man. The um, David Data wrote a book, The Superior Man. He, I don't know if you've heard of David Data, but we he's one of the, in the, the Tantra community of teachers where the men now wanting to be more sensual and getting in touch with their feminine, the feminine that lives with, you know, we have a masculine and feminine in each of us to, to, and that helps men to, that are very, that have, again, overdeveloped egos, narcissism, et cetera, like that, that they're very, they, the woman likes that when the man is in touch with his feminine because she starts to see more vulnerability in him, more feeling, more heart, more uh, letting, letting go, let, letting himself, um, open up to to the senses more and this is where we really are because the women have grown in that area already we it's time for the man i mean it's been time and we have there's many workshops out there on this and uh but most i i get phone calls and they want to awaken that 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 the masculine meaning the feminine power the sensual power that's in they men want to be sensual yes Absolutely. I think that men are brought up so threatened 
in their sexuality. That's the whole deal for a man. And because men grow up being threatened, men grow up being, you know, feeling that they're going to be found out. Tremendous fear develops actually now quite early with so much, you know, knowledge now about what it is to be gay, homosexual, whatever. Don't put any of that down. I think everyone should come out in their own way. Just a side issue maybe for some other time on, on, on my podcast. But there's such a fear of being sensual or even cuddly or warm or, or, or loving or expressive, such, such a fear even of expressing emotion. And emotion is a very important component of sensuality. Sensuality without emotion, without feeling, without that vibration of what's really going in, on inside of you emotionally, emotionally slash spiritually, is not sensuality. So yes, men have to learn these things. They're so, 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 so threatened. And I'd look at it maybe slightly differently. And that is to say that, that there is a masculine form of sensitivity and expression. That is, if you go up, if you go up to men and say, well, you know, you have to emphasize your, your feminine side. Well, a really evolved man who's already taken some steps can accept that. But a man who's less evolved maybe has to go up that mountain by taking baby steps and, and realizing that there are things about himself already that have that that sense of of caring, that sense of of uh, compassion, that sense of the physical in a way to be physical in a way that isn't a matter of punching something or building something or sawing something, to be physical in a way that is that exalts in the in the notion of being physical that exalts in touch that exalts in feeling uh that exalts in a yoga position for example all of these things men really have to learn that but a lot of men need to learn that from the ground up and it's so exciting that now men are discovering that this is the path they really need to take to realize themselves and to liberate themselves and recreate themselves wonderfully said well, we're almost out of time, Randolph. Um, can you uh, give us some information uh, a little bit just for a moment about your podcast and where we can find you, my guest, where they can uh, reach you if they need, want to get more information? Yes, Explore Ecstatic Sensuality is on all the platforms from Amazon Music to Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, uh, etc. You can find me everywhere. I can also am on YouTube. Uh, just to say a couple of hot topic issues that I have coming up. Uh, the next one will be cheating, which is something that I think uh, people are interested in just by the nature of the thing. I think I have some surprising, some surprising things to say about that. And then after that, we're going into polyamory and open relationships. And I think that's going to be a multi-episode show. So that's Explore Ecstatic Sensuality. Mm, wonderful. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be here on my show, Discover Joyous Love. I'm Anita DeFrancesco, and this is episode 22. We've been talking to RandolphPitts.com, I believe. Is that one, your website, RandolphPitts.com? Yes, it is. And uh, my website is TantraWisdom.com, and you can find this podcast again on all of the platforms out there. Um, I also have a true crime book called the Donna Gentile story.com. And that's a wonderful read. Both of my books live free and the Donna Gentile story.com are available on amazon.com. And uh, you can reach, uh, reach out there to find the books or reach out to me and I'll give you more information um, for um, the work that I do here. And uh, thank you very much for tuning in to discover joyous love. <laughs>